Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to New Jersey is the world. Hope everybody's been enjoying March Madness as Jersey puts a dent in things again via FDU and Princeton. Um, if you are on the Patreon, you know I threw up an emergency episode discussing FDU and Princeton with my brother, who's a college hoops fanatic. He's been my whole life been an encyclopedia of, uh, of college basketball, and we talked a lot about how FDU is a prototypical Jersey story, and he made a pitch as to why Jersey should, in fact, embrace Princeton in a way that's not always in our nature. So check it out over at patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. Now, today, I am so excited to tell you we talked to a band called Jackson Pines, and it was a great conversation. We've talked a lot about music on the show, mostly about New Jersey's punk scene. This is a little different. These guys came out of that DIY scene, and they certainly have the DIY attitude, but they play folk music. And not just folk music, okay? They put out an album called The Pine Barrens, Volume 1. And the premise of this album is that these are not original songs. These are songs that they tracked down that have been sung as folk songs in The Pine Barrens for decades. In some cases, much longer than that. And this idea that there is a culture to the Pine Barrens and people who lived within the Pine Barrens, people live there now, and certainly up until recently, it was a much more isolated place. And when you have an isolated place full of people, it creates culture and lifestyle choices and food you don't find other places, and yes, songs. And they have tracked down these songs faithfully, and they're putting out the first volume, which indicates more on their way. And what a cool thing. These guys are, are genuinely cool people, fun to talk to, and they get it, but they also have a very clear-cut sense of purpose that I appreciate of, no, 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 we're resurrecting these songs, we're recording them anew, and we're doing our best to spread word about the culture of the Pine Barrens via its very unique music. It's, it's really awesome what's going on. Uh, March 22nd, they're playing in Asbury Park with the Tisburys, the Lunar Year, and Little Hag. March 23rd in Lakewood, New Jersey at the Geis Art Gallery. That's G-E-I-S at Georgian Court College. It's a duo set open to the public and it's free, 6 p.m. It's going to be a short set, but check it out. Also, um, uh, one of the members of Jackson Pines in the course of the episode mentioned that there was a, a crazy incident involving a governor fencing off the Pine Barrens or suggesting that they fence off the Pine Barrens, um, but followed up. He did more research on it and uh, wanted to get the real details out there. Uh, James F. Fielder, who was a Democrat from Jersey City and the 35th governor of New Jersey, took over after Woodrow Wilson became president. Uh, he campaigned on the segregation and sterilization of Pineys. He wanted to forcibly keep Pineys in the Pine Barrens, do a bunch of eugenic stuff to him, scary stuff. Um... So the, the idea of the fence being built seems to be maybe something that was misremembered. But the idea of isolating and segregating pineys, uh, very real and very scary. Anyway, this conversation was great. I felt lucky to have it. I think you're going to enjoy it and support Jackson Pines. They are doing something unique and they are an outlier. And it's, it's not something that's easy to categorize. And if you ask me, that's the exact type of thing we need to fight tooth and nail to shine some light on and support in this beautiful goddamn state of ours. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, hello, to, hello to everybody listening. You, it, it might sound like we're picking up mid-sentence because we are. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, we're here right now. We're talking with Joe and James from the band Jackson Pines. And we were just shooting the breeze a little bit, getting to know each other. And I said, this is all solid gold. I'm hitting record. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk specifically about the band and your latest projects, which I think all of our listeners will be interested in. But James, you were also just telling us how you work. I believe you said in, in Jackson in an actual sand mine. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of a family tradition. My grandpa, uh, we have a family welding business, and we uh, we pretty much fix whatever breaks around there. They have a few other ones around, but yeah, so it's pretty wild. It doesn't look anything like New Jersey. I mean, but it's pretty cool. Interesting job, you know. What's the name of it again, James? Your family company? <laughs> plug, plug, plug. Oh, uh, Blackie's Welding. It was my grandpa's nickname, James Black. So they, his name was uh, Lloyd Black. 
and uh, his nickname was Blackie. So, what was the yeah. company catchphrase? You got a catchphrase, didn't you? Oh, he he could weld anything but a broken heart and a crack of dawn. So, <laughs> this is already my favorite episode we've we ever just done. end this. Yeah, just end this now. <laughs> you're uh, you're backing me up well, James. So I'm glad you're. Uh, so I'm getting that I want to I want to say right out of the gate any tangents we want to go on that aren't focused on the band and music we're happy to spend some time and go down tangents because I can tell you guys have a real <laughs> rabbit hole tendency I can tell it within the first two minutes oh, yeah. but we should mention you guys are the uh, you guys are the brains behind Jackson Pines which is uh, South Jersey band Philly band uh, Joe you were saying beforehand that you're Philly based now but that you guys are always billed as a Jersey band. And we've covered a lot of music on the show. And we've also talked a lot with people who you, you find out in Jersey that a lot of people have backgrounds in the DIY scene, which is largely associated with the punk scene. You guys are doing something musically very different than that. I think methodology-wise, it's right in tune with that idea of Jersey people doing Jersey stuff and just getting it done, doing it their own way. This is... Uh, old school folk music. This is Pine Barrens Volume 1, which you guys just put out. And I'm really fascinated by this because this is something that in spirit, I think all of our listeners are going to totally get. Sound-wise, though, this is old school. People might be tempted right at the gate to think, oh, these guys wrote a folky-sounding album about the Pine Barrens, almost maybe similar to like, you know, Sufjan Stevens doing it about Illinois. Right on. I want to be clear, while I do love a lot of the songs on that album and great respect, and also he's got South Jersey associations as well, let's not forget, but this is different than that. These are actual folk songs that came out of the Pine Barrens, some of them a hundred years old. I have to wonder what compelled you to do this and how it all came together. Yeah. So, you know, me and James, we do come from, you know, that Jersey um, ethic of you know DIY music. We grew up in Jackson. Um, we came of age like in the aughts, like around like 2003 to 2006 was like when we were teenagers coming up in the scene. And in our area, just as much as there was in New Brunswick and North Jersey, there was at the time that we were like in high school, a huge local scene. Like there was hundreds of bands between Northern Ocean County and Southern Monmouth County and all these shows. So me and James um, are from the same hometown, Jackson, and we always played in bands that would play the same shows and we're always friends in the same group. And then eventually we started playing music together. Um, so at that time, James was in punk bands. He was known as a punk bass player in a couple bands that we played around and knew. Um, and I always played more like kind of acoustic music. Like I was like the emo kid at the hardcore show that played first at like 1 p.m. And like I'd open up the show like acoustic, like playing like folky, kind of like, you know, Bright Eyes influenced singer songwriter stuff. And then it would be grindcore bands, metal bands, straight edge bands. Um, but like, there was always a lot of love. Like they let me play and like, no one, like peeps, some of the people like would protect me. Like when there'd be like, you know, people didn't want an acoustic guy to show other people would step up for me and stuff. So like the scene was really strong even then. Um, and as we got a little bit older, like into college and stuff, me and James were always into like listening to Bob Dylan records and Joan Baez records and listening to Neil Young and listening to, um, Emmy Lou Harris and stuff. And we were always wondering, like, what did they listen to? What was the music that they were influenced by? And James always had a great record collection in high school and a great cassette tape collection and introduced me to a lot of different artists that I'd never heard of before. So we kind of started transforming into a band that did what you were describing originally, which was we played original music, which we still mainly do. We play original music that is in. Uh, informed and influenced by all this older American music, whether it be like Woody Guthrie in the 40s or Pete Seeger, we discovered his music and we started to write our own stuff and to play some of their stuff. And by, you know, around 2010, when I was in school, um, we had a band together with some other friends. We'd play in New York City all the time because that's where I went to college until I, the band started doing good and I dropped out and we started traveling the country in a van that we bought. So we kind of found ourselves in this idiom of just playing original and older folk music um, all around the country. We go to Nashville, New Orleans. We still, you know, now, you know, COVID, we're finally this year and last year starting to pick up and travel more after a couple of years of not being on the road. But 
everywhere we'd go, we'd be playing our folk music. And at some point it would come up that we were from New Jersey. Um, we'd say it ourselves or someone would ask and we'd say Jersey. <laughs> and someone would say New Jersey folk music. Yeah. Like hearty, har, har, like kind of like, you know, take shots at us. Like New Jersey folk music. What is that? There's no such thing. What does it even sound like? Um, and admittedly at the time, we didn't really know any New Jersey folk songs. You know, we knew American folk songs. We played songs from Tennessee and Virginia and famous ones from Ireland and stuff, but we didn't really know. Um, and then we discovered, you know, we kind of did go down this rabbit hole that led us to all this material. And over the last two years, we started to really find uh, that there really is a history of country music and folk music in New Jersey. And we just started learning the tunes. And the way we came to it was um, a friend of ours knew that we were interested in this kind of stuff. And he's a DJ at WFMU. And his name is Alan Smith. He only started DJing there recently in the last two years. But he discovered his website. And sure enough, it was 25 recordings that were made at Rutgers University in the 80s of a dude named Merce Ridgway Jr. And his father was a folk musician in the 40s who wrote a lot of music, and so did he. And he recorded a bunch of his songs, his dad's songs, and even older folk songs. And that's how we're sourcing this material uh, for, the, for the first album. So it just was this kind of journey through music that led us to this crazy place where all of a sudden we could answer the question like, oh, wait, actually, we do know what New Jersey folk music sounds like. And now we just finally released it for the first time. It's a pretty epic thing that you're doing. It's it's really rad. I also have to point out it's in the tradition of a lot of the great American music, um, as far as the roots of American music, not pop music, but music that's working class, union songs, this type of thing. It reminds me of the way songs will get re-recorded, and new generations of people find out about them. Like, you know, I think an example a lot of people might know is. Nirvana does their Unplugged album and they sing a song that they call Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And it's right. a cover of Lead Belly. And then Lead Belly, it turns out, was doing a song called In the Pines and no one even really knows where that song came from <laughs> because it was so much older than that. So this idea in folk music that it seems to me that folk music, even more than pop music, has this legacy of you do a cover, you re-release it to get it out to a new generation, and that's what allows that song to live on. And it seems like this is a very active effort to say, not only are we doing that as a folk band, we're doing that specifically for the Pine Barrens, which is a region we identify with that has been largely forgotten. Um, it's really fucking cool. It, it brings me back to, you know, I was an American Studies major at, at Rutgers, which I hardly use, but you think about, like, John and Alan Lomax traveling the country and chronicling all the folk music during the, you know, I, I believe during the Great Depression. And mm -hmm. they, they got it all into the, the National Archives and the Library of Congress and this and that stuff lives on. It seems right. like this is an active part of folk music. And it's really cool that you guys are stepping up and doing it for Jersey specifically. Yeah, because it's like where we come from. So it's like the most natural thing. Like there's always these arguments of like authenticity versus how much of it is, you know, an act in any kind of genre of music. But folk music has the same exact issues, right? But when it comes down to it, <clears throat> you know, a lot of folk music is folks playing the music that was played by their, you know, ancestors in their kitchens on their front porch, Um this music was called, you know, uh, kitchen table music. And that's not an uncommon term across the country. But even those families, you know, they referred to it themselves as kitchen table music. It wasn't meant to be on stage, but it got that way. Um, and the music had about almost 100 years ago, 80 years ago, Pine Barrens music, people took an interest in it because uh, it was around that time of the folk revival was just about to get going. Um, and there were some people who were really interested and wrote about it and then it kind of died down again. So it's sort of like, yeah, like a cyclical thing every 80, hundred years, the songs kind of come back again. And, uh, you know, since we're already doing this kind of, you know, work playing our own music, we finally found some of it and figured like, well, we got to be playing this. So now when we play live, you know, a show that we'll do, we'll play two or three of those songs, you know, every night. And then certain gigs that we have coming up, we'll really focus in on it and do like a whole set of that kind of material and base it around it, depending on what we're doing, because we're still, you know, a band that plays original music and we still play, you know, 
regular venues and DIY basements in West Philly and in New York City and stuff. Um, but we still work it in wherever we go because it's not it's not very different. It still sounds like us because we interpret it our own way. Um, like, for example, we find a song, uh, we'll keep the chords the same, we'll keep the melody the same, but we might change the rhythm a little or play it in our own style. And that's yeah, what people have been doing for hundreds of years. So it's just really funny that like of all the things like New Jersey folk music kind of got dropped into our lap and we were like, well, we have to have to do something with this and uh people seem to be you know intrigued by it because it's something you know you don't expect it it's like saying you know this is uh champagne from you know not the right region or something but this really is folk it's, it's like saying sparkling folk music yeah you know what i mean so we're trying to actually like bring it from the actual ground that it comes from which is which is funny like um you know for example like on the cover of the album, we took a bunch of old pictures from books that we've sourced some of this material from. Um, and one of them is a picture of this place called Kyers Mills. And it's actually from the book um, Forgotten Towns of South Jersey by um, Henry, Henry Charlton Beck. Yeah, which I've, I've heard read you it. Mention. I've heard you mention I've it. I've read it as well. <laughs> big, big Henry Charlton Beck fan over here. So, like, Old these are the Henry Charlton Real Beck. Beckhead. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and, like, so Kyers Mills is in this book written in the thirties. It says like, there's a picture of it and all it says is Kyers Mills now a dismal place. So I was like, we got to use. Don't this. tell North Jersey that. Don't, <laughs> don't tell someone from North Jersey that. But that was back then. It was a, you know, it was like a mill town that was known in the 1800s for having violin playing contests and dances on the weekends. But like people would say South Jersey, there's no country music, there's no folk music from there, but there really was. Um, and then in this book, you know, there's a connection to how it was a lost town, but me and James grew up there as kids or my dad would take us fishing there as a kid. It's a big park now. It's like a, you know, a preserve, it's a preserved piece of the Pinelands now. Um, but it turns out that one of the songs that we put on our record was found there by a song catcher, like a Lomax type character who was going around New Jersey looking for songs. It turns out there's an article written in the thirties. Um, and he said that a man who was about 80 years old sang him this song and said that his mother-in-law, whose name was Mrs. Grover, taught it to him. So that means that if he was born in like around 1850, she's probably born around 1820 or 1830 or something like that in this town. That's now a part of Jackson and new Egypt. Um, and it turns out the song, the lyric goes back to 1400s England. Hell yeah. And the only other places it was ever found in North America was Newfoundland, Kentucky, and Ocean County, New Jersey. That's amazing. And so we were like, we got to do this one. And that's The Unquiet Grave, which is an old ballad. It's really obvious. I think a project like this, there's a version of it where it's really gimmicky, right? And you can feel that people are kind of doing it just because it's like a, you know, quirky or different or whatever. But listening, obviously, to, to the album, then also talking to y'all, it's clear that you've done your research so deeply and that it comes from such a personal place that um i think you use the word uh you know that debate between like authenticity and and whatever else and it's it's just very clear that that's not something that's going on here and i really as somebody who spent a lot of my childhood in mount holly um it 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 just feels good to see this being something done so like genuinely and clearly out of love i don't know yeah, we just try to have fun with it. And, you know, we try to also like make the point known, like we don't pretend or like play that like we're like pineys, like we know piney folk and we it's not that we don't want to be pineys. Like it's nothing like that. <laughs> we actually like know people who grew up and like lived that lifestyle or their, right. their parents did, you know, or their grandparents lived that lifestyle of the person who doesn't work a regular nine to five job, lives off the land, you know, harvest their own berries, hunts, does that. It's we don't like dress up and pretend to be like, you know, yokel folkies. <laughs> like we're just kids from the DIY scene that love folk music and indie rock and all that. And we are just paying our homage because we have the skill set to play these tunes. We have friends that do play the fiddle and the banjo. I play guitar and harmonica. James plays stand up bass that we have the tool set to really do it. And it, it's to honor that that tradition, um, but also at the same rate, like have fun with it. Like it's songs. They're meant to be played. They're meant to be like joyful. And that's like what we're trying to bring to it, you know? It's really interesting what you just brought up because there is a side and, and, and I'm no authority and I'm not going to claim that I'm part of the scene. I am someone who I, I feel like I was able to drop the name John and Alan Lomax off of memory. And that gives me some 
I, I am aware enough that I can speak to that. There are certainly some bands who will lock into this style and then they drive from the show in a tour bus and they're checking Instagram and TikTok like everybody else. And right. yet on stage, they're in overalls and playing <laughs> the image, you know? And right. you said you guys don't do that. Right. It does make me wonder, because you are doing this the right way, these songs that have been played there forever. You guys are from Jackson. Jackson is a part of the Pinelands ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But now Jackson also has a... Great adventure, and it's you know one of the best pizza places in the state. Everybody says is uh, Brooklyn Square, which I believe it's called in Jackson, right? Like, yeah, James, have you tried that yet? Have you had it? I haven't had it there a few times. Yeah, it's okay. it's good. It lives up to the hype, man. It is good. Oh yeah, good stuff. The Jackson that you guys know, it's different than the one Mercer Ridgeway Junior knew. Let alone that Mercer Ridgeway Senior knew. But because you guys aren't trying to fake it and aren't trying to cultivate that image. You're just living lives much like people in the Pine Barrens have lived their lives for centuries. It does make me wonder when you're playing this music in front of a crowd of other South Jersey people at a South Jersey show, what are the emotions that come up as far as being part of a lineage? I know it's sort of a wide open question that's directionless, but I am left wondering if it does feel like this connects you to the, like you said, you know people whose, whose families did live off the land. I wonder if it makes you feel connected in some way. It, it does. I mean, that's at the heart of a lot of artistic endeavors, I feel like, is this like search for connection in some way, or especially when you like live in a place that's in a state of constant transition, like a town like Jackson, which very much was, you know, like James's parents, um, you know, he has relatives that go way back into Jackson, but also has relatives from North Jersey. Both of my parents were born in North Jersey and were that generation that moved further south because it was seemed more peaceful. It was less crowded. You know, my dad was from Perth Amboy. My mom was from uh, Colonia and then picked Jackson in the 70s. Um, and yeah, it, you know, suburban uh, sprawl, um, the amount of building construction. I mean, we're watching the woods get cut down before our eyes. Every week I go back to practice or rehearse. We see bits of our childhood woods that were like sacred spaces to us, just like clear cut to the next road. And you can just see the house that you have to drive over here and go over there to get to see. You know, a lot of it's warehouses now too, right? That's kind of a story that people are starting to talk more and more about in Jersey is that South Jersey is turning into, I hear... Amazon warehouses primarily everywhere. They're starting to say it's not even condos anymore. It's warehouses. Yeah, you do. You do see one now, right? When you get off the exit that I take to go to where, you know, where James lives is our headquarters for the band where we practice and record and do everything there. Um, and it is kind of becoming yes, yeah, storage space for the rest of the state in a way. Um, and we'd hate to see that, you know, continuing to the rest of the Pine Barrens. Luckily, you know, a lot of it is protected. But um, yeah, like when we play, for example, like we had a really, really interesting show last fall. We played at Whitesbog Preservation. And Whitesbog is where the cultivated blueberry was invented, basically, by um, Elizabeth White, an early, you know, badass woman scientist. Um, and basically... Um, the history of the place, short and simple, is Philadelphia, um, like migrant workers, they would be brought in bus from Philly and they would pick the wild blueberries. And she like had a system for classifying them of different sizes and would breed the biggest ones to the point where that's like where the blueberry in the whole like world basically comes from. Um, and they have concerts there all the time and they have a beautiful park and they have all the old buildings preserved. And we played there. And we played some of these tunes and we mentioned, you know, what, where they were from, who wrote them. And afterwards, uh, an older gentleman and woman came up to us and said, you know, they knew Merce Ridgeway and they used to listen to him play music at Albert Hall back in the 70s and 80s, um, which is another connecting point for this music. So, you know, Albert Music Hall in Waretown, uh, we play there a couple times a year. We're going to be there uh, in a couple weeks again, um, has been having a weekly bluegrass country and folk concert almost every week since the 1970s. Um, and Merce Ridgway Jr. was actually the co-founder of it. So we start to realize, like, our older band had played at Albert Hall before I knew who Merce was, before I knew about him and his father's music. But we played there a few times in our a different band we used to be in that played folk music as well. Then I heard the name, and it all started clicking up and, like, matching and connecting. And we were like, okay, 
So then we went back to Albert Hall and started asking more questions. Come to find out, like, their pictures are on the walls. <laughs> so when we play a show at Albert Hall and we play these songs, there's people, like, well, the first time we did it, there was someone in the audience started, like, pointing to, like, the walls while we were playing to, like, show us, like, these over there. Um, and it really is an interesting, yeah, connecting, grounding thing because, um, like, you know, we started talking about, you know, the DIY scene when you're young, you know, no scene lasts forever. It grows and changes and new people come in and other people phase out. But like, you know, it was such a central part of our growing up, like going to the basement shows, the church shows. Uh, there used to be shows at Prince of Peace, which was on Route 9 and Howell all the time. There were shows at a place called the um, Clarksburg Inn, which is this little area of a town called Millstone around Freehold. But it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere when you're there. And they used to rent out this old camping lodge and they'd have shows there. One time I saw like a, the guy who rented it, someone picked up a folding chair and like hit him across the face with a WWF style. And like when those things go away and like, you know, all that stuff kind of disappears, you know, you feel kind of lost sometimes. So definitely it has like a grounding feeling to perform it for folks that actually, some of them do remember like the earlier bands and some of them actually had seen them and are actually do know the songs we're playing, which is like the, the wildest part. We think we're like, you know, showing people what's up, but then there's folks that are like, yeah, we've been here. We've, heard that song since the 1970s so it's just been uh it's a special thing so we're just trying to do it justice while we can i uh i'll say you know part of new jersey is the world one of our shows on the patreon is andrea and i do a show called south jersey is also the world which is you know because me and my buddies who started the project are all essex county guys and, we about that. and i'll i'll cop to it anybody who listens knows I'll take a pot shot at South Jersey for humor value in the course of it. I think Andrea will also look for uh, look for ways to remind me that I grew up on a super fun site in Essex County. You know, like there's there's ways. But when I get aside from the bit of that, and it, especially in speaking to you and this music that so represents the culture of the place, what's a uh, what's the what's people's relationship, whether it's your own or whether it's the sense you get from playing down in Chatsworth at the hall. What's people's relationship with the word piney now? Because that used to be a term of derision. I feel like right. even within my lifetime, it has become less so. But I'm not certain about that. So I'm yeah. wondering how people feel about that word. For sure. Well, I'll, just to start it off, James could speak to it too. Um, yeah, one of the reasons why it was always such a, uh, like a dirty word in a sense was like, you know, in the 1920s, um, like the who I don't know his name, whoever the schmuck was that ran for governor, one of his main running points was that he was going to build a wall around the Pine Barrens to keep the people in so they couldn't come out and like murder the fine people of the rest of New Jersey. Hold on, I have not, in all my years of researching weird things in New Jersey, I have not heard about this. And the guy won. I mean, I'm not, um, he literally, Trump style said, I'm going to build a wall to keep the bad people out, but the bad people back then were just people in the Pine Barrens? They were just people minding their own business, living off the land, not wanting to be bothered. But there was talk of like building a fence or wall like thing. Um, and he won. And that probably wasn't his only running point, but it was like a major one. And it came out of this like hub, like hullabaloo. Um, I forget their names, but these like bogus pseudoscientists basically wrote this article and they took one family that had some like very interesting, colorful characters, some, some criminals, and also some people that probably had like, health problems like for real like like they were like taking advantage of people that had like disabilities probably right and they wrote this article saying that this is the hereditary um evolution of the people in this area and this is what everyone's like and it became known for like you know 30 40 50 years it just was ingrained and woven into the culture of new jersey to hate and to judge without knowing based upon just what people would say about the pioneers down there so the reaction originally like in the eighties or the nineties is if you called someone that really was a piney, that name, they would be very angry. Um, and it would be an issue. It would be a very big issue. It would be something to fight over for real. Um, but now it has been reclaimed in a way by the folks who are descended from the people who did live that way and live that life. But I think James, you could also talk about it a little bit because you uh, and your dad, you know, were friends with a guy who still lived off the grid by your house. Yeah, yeah, you pretty much nailed it with that. But I mean, yeah, it's some people. It's kind of become a, like they have the stickers now, like Piney Power and Proud to Be a Piney from my nose down to my hiney. So it is. <laughs> it's become like kind of a 
thing. Like, I don't know, but there is, there's definitely still some out there. I mean, Carl Crawford, he lived, he actually had a house in Kyers Mills. He just passed away in, uh, I believe August or September, but he kind of, he had some, he had a little farm out there, chicken coops and all that. And real, he had his own, uh, he had a little red truck he would drive around in and, uh, he had a big antenna on it and he would broadcast his own radio show out of it. And he'd pull up in the rules. He'd pull up in the VFW hall down the road and he would, uh, cause he said that had the best signal. He could get like a mile and he could, uh, he would broadcast the radio show for like an hour every day and record them on cassette and then drop them off at our shop. So I do have a few of them. Oh my God. He was a character, but there's definitely, uh, and you say he didn't have he didn't have electricity until how recently? Yeah, it was pretty re- a lot pretty recently. I forget, but oh man, he was a. Uh, how old was he when he passed away? Um, nobody knows. Early, yeah, <laughs> probably early nineties, late eighties, somewhere around there. So the but, guy was living in this you know simple house, no electricity, getting everything for himself and doing it until like about like you know eighty five years old. Um, and the idea of it was is that you know the the people of the Pine Barrens are folks who, after like the American Revolution or during it basically in the colonial times, like didn't pick a side. Um, you know, like it's like folks that were just like didn't you know stayed to themselves, and a lot of the people who you know were would be called pioneers in the 20th century were basically uh, people that are largely like English and like Lenape actually, because there's a lot of just folks you know living together, and you know you end up having different you know sorts of families. Um, so Merce Ridgeway was part Lenape and also English, and all the members of his band, which were like second cousins of his, were. And another image on the cover of our album, which um, I got from this crazy book, I couldn't believe I was able to find it, had a centerfold photo of the original Pine Hawkers, which is Merce's dad, Merce Jr and the Britain brothers. And that's whose material we're recording on this album. Um, and in the uh, photo, the Britain's mother is in it. And it notes that she's actually, she was half Lenape and uh, half English as well. So even up until the 20th century, still there was folks that were living out there that were still of Lenape descent. Um, so it's like, what does New Jersey folk music sound like? It sounds like a half English, half Lenape <laughs> family playing together just for their own entertainment, you know? Um, and then there's another guy by the name of um, Oliver. Um, I have to get the exact name for you, but I believe it's Oliver Minnie. Um, yes, Oliver Minnie, and he was known for singing Mount Holly Jail. And he's one of the people that was. They found him singing it and wrote it down in the 1930s in the same article that I was telling you about. Um, and he was half Lenape and half Black. So that's also like, what does New Jersey folk music really sound like? Well, these are the roots of it. This is like where it's coming from in the early 20th century. Folks who lived off the grid and just were able to work throughout the year, the different things. Like in the fall, you harvest cranberries and blueberries. In the winter, you make charcoal and sell it to people so they can heat their furnaces and their houses. And then in the spring, you gather flowers and sell them to the Philadelphia flower market. Like turns out the Philadelphia flower show, you know, which is really a famous thing in the whole country and maybe even the world. Um, back in the day, like one third of the flowers at the flower show came out of the Pine Barrens. Um, and it was a huge economy, the flower market. Um, so you would work this calendar. It was called the Richardson calendar um, because he, was a, he wasn't actually a piney himself, but he helped sell their goods to the cities. He was kind of like the middleman, like the New Jersey middle guy, like getting the goods, making sure people got paid. And uh, so it's a really, you know, it's an interesting thing. And in the fact that, yeah, there's still some folks, not as many as there were, but there's still some folks that still live that way out there. And um you know, they nowadays the piney name though has been taken, you know, reclaimed with pride. Um, as long as like, yeah, you're not like doing a send up and you're not playing it up and like someone isn't like coming in and like trying to like turn it into some kind of like marketing scheme or something, you know, that's that's not cool. So, um, but yeah, it's definitely been reclaimed and it used to be a very bad thing to say in South Jersey. When you're when you were just like uh doing the acoustic act right before the grindcore band. Mm-hmm. The weird types of shows that I also went to. Would you ever have dreamed that someday you'd get older, and and if somebody had told you you'll still be putting out music decades from now, 
but it will also involve you having to very thoroughly research the history of local blueberry cultivation. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever have imagined that this would be would be what happened? No, not not at all. I mean, I always, you know, we always were interested in history and always loved music, but we didn't think it would actually get sewn together so seamlessly in the thing. And sometimes I like joke about it on Instagram like when we have to post for our social media because like you know at the end of the day we're a band and like we play songs and that's like the important thing to us but with this music is an asterisk of like it does deserve a little explanation but i'm always saying like you know i'm always hitting you over the head with these like long explanations of something from 1935 led to this and then but like that's really how we came upon this this kind of material um but no i did not did not really expect that when we were be playing like uh, getting beer spilled on us in the basement in uh, Tom's River, you know, when we were 17, that we would be, you know, playing like in April, for example, we're going to be doing this material at the New Jersey Folk Festival at Rutgers. Cool. Um, we didn't No, I never expected it to be to be that. Did I have maybe like, you know, uh, egotistical dreams of other things like maybe being like, you know, like a rock star, like the garden or something. Maybe that's what I was thinking, but like, it seems almost somehow more satisfying to do what we do now just because it, uh, it really just kind of ties everything back to like how we grew up and all that stuff. Again, like we're suburban kids. We didn't grow up in, you know, tar paper shacks. Like some of these, you know, folks in the woods really did, but you know, we grew up as kids, bringing our guitars in the woods and making fires and like, you know, doing the teen thing, drinking beer and playing around the fire and it, to have it turn into something actually like kind of meaningful uh, is, yeah, it's, it's, it's special without being too earnest, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. It, it also makes me feel a lot of music in the pop world that's viewed as New Jersey music. I feel like as you're speaking and you're speaking to what these songs were and what they represented, to the Ridgeways and their cousins and the people listening as they played kitchens and front porches and things like that back in the day. The easy one is to say, you know, everybody always said Springsteen was billed as the new Dylan and mm -hmm. Dylan loved Woody Guthrie. And you can see those, and Woody Guthrie, obviously, is a huge part of folk. Yeah. Um, but I'd also argue, and this might be a reach, but I'd argue that a lot of New Jersey music that people come to love has some commonalities lyrically with folk in a way that maybe people don't even realize on the surface, even those bands. Like, I would argue that the Bouncing Souls with all their sing-alongs, you know, if they existed in an era before electric, you know, before amps and before sound systems, I have a feeling that those sing-alongs would probably be happening on front porches and a lot of their best songs that everybody... You go and see the souls today and the whole crowd starts singing along certain songs, you know, even even some of the modern bands like the Front Bottoms who, you know, are catching such way. I, I think of my friends in the Erds. I'm like, these are songs. A lot of what Jersey people respond to in their music are songs that kind of make the most sense to a couple drunks at the end of the bar. <laughs> and it just happens to blow up beyond that, you know, but they're oh, songs yeah. that somebody who just got off of work could drown their sorrows in. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with the exact types of songs that people were playing, you know, not just in the New Jersey Pine Barrens, but in Appalachia and in up and down, you know, all the different mountainous parts of the East Coast in the early days of, of America. Absolutely. I kind of feel like Jersey audiences don't even realize it, but lyrically, there is a tradition here that they are a part of. Absolutely. And I mean, like you said, like when it comes to like the souls, like so many of those songs structure wise, if you take away the music and you look at how they're yeah, structured and how they're formed, it's call and response with those mm -hmm. sing-alongs um, that could be directly tied to like, you know, Pete Seeger and his style of he would always try to get everyone to sing with him. And that is such a part of punk rock and the live show experience. If you think about like on our record, what is one of the tropes of folk music? Murder ballad. Okay. Um, the you know, if you think about the Misfits, the Misfits write murder ballads. They just sound a little bit different, you know? Um, Bruce Springsteen, obviously, it's no secret that he has released folk records in addition to rock and roll records. Um, and there's just course, there's so course. many of those things that, yeah, absolutely. Um, like we, Lifetime, theme from a New Brunswick basement show. Oh, yeah. It's just cool. kind of a hardcore folk song, right? Like, it's just kind of a story song about a night out in the life of somebody who's lost. It's like a lot of the songs that people were playing on banjos back in the day, when you think about it. Oh, absolutely. And there's a reason why there's like a pipeline of like 
like 50 year old guy from a punk band eventually puts out his acoustic folk punk album one day because it's like it's not a leap it's not like you know it is actually a there's a is a causal thing there's a reason why that happens it's not because they just wake up one day and decide to go folk it's because this is also on their record player just not their first loud bands you know what i mean um james same way i mean he was always in punk bands like what is the you didn't you get like a stick and poke when you were like 10 years old just like the <laughs> bouncing souls or bouncing something souls yeah that was my first tattoo <laughs> Or, uh, is it, did it disappear yet, or is it still there? I still have it. It's barely <laughs> on there. I actually showed it to Pete Steinkoff one night, and he, <laughs> he, did, and he didn't approve. I don't think it was, <laughs> it's, like I mean, it's barely. Kid. It looks a kid. Uh, we had a Halloween party at our, our buddy's house in high school, and the next day, we the next day, this kid showed up with a homemade tattoo gun with a toothbrush and like a. <laughs> but I got. I just got the. You know, the anchor with the broken heart. I got that on my leg, but um, some kid got a big cross on his back with an eagle or something. <laughs> I can't imagine what that looked like today. But. Amazing. And you were 10? No, it was uh, high school. Okay. Like senior okay. year. That's okay. Yeah. A little better. I'm telling, yeah. I'm telling tall tales. I exaggerate <laughs> a little bit on that one, but I knew, I knew it almost disappeared by now. So, yeah. but yeah, there's just such a through line, you know, when it comes to, to all that, all the content, I mean, straight through, like you said, whether it be what you got through Johnny Cash or all the way to like, you know, the songwriters of the nineties and the aughts and stuff. Um, and that's why like we were interested in delving into it. Cause it's not like if we found these songs and like thought they were bad, we wouldn't have done this. Like I wouldn't have just, like no one's paying us to do this. Like we're, you know, this and let me also say too, like we all flipped out. Me, Andrea, all the New Jersey is the world getting sent around the band camp as you guys have been putting it out over the past few weeks. And I should say too, we're deep into this interview. We're talking about like theoretical associations with the word piney and the history of the music. It's like we all put it on. And we're like, oh shit, this is awesome. These are just yeah. good songs. These are really good songs. And that's what we're trying to like highlight. And, you know, so for example, like Mount Holly Jail, it turns out that there is a song from New Hampshire that's called Hard Times in Lancaster Jail. So I do, you know, my sleuthing. I get some books on eBay. I order stuff and I'm looking through. And it turns out that Lomax actually wrote in his career at one point. I'm still waiting for this book to arrive. But um, he wrote that he believed that Mount Holly Jail... So he knew about this New Jersey folk song. The the dude himself believed that Mount Holly Jail and Lancaster Jail were cousin songs that had a similar mm-hmm. ancestor somewhere along the way. So maybe it would be, you know, British England, I mean, British Canada, or maybe it's from England or something earlier. Um, but these songs are not just cool, nifty little things from Jersey. They also have their bona fides. Like they go back into the history. They traveled over with human beings who sang them to their families and they just kept growing and changing over time. Um, so it's just like, there really is uh, a lot of different reasons for it. And on top of it all, it's, I think they're really good songs. Um, whether it be, yeah, Mount Holly Jail is from the 1800s at least. Uh, some of them are from the 40s because Merce Ridgway Sr. wrote them himself. He was actually a great songwriter in his own right. Um, but it doesn't make it any less folk because Woody Guthrie wrote all of his material in the late 30s and in the 1940s. Um, and then, like I said, yeah, even stuff going back to like literally medieval England um, that still was being sung in the 1940s when the Pine Hawkers were put on the radio a couple times. Um which is another part of the story is a woman. Uh, she was an opera singer. Her name was Dorothea Dix Lawrence. And she's the one who discovered the Pine Hawkers, took them out of obscurity in the pines and said, if you want to play some gigs on the radio, I'll represent you. Um, and it turns out that she made a map of the entire United States with song examples from each state. So she traveled the whole country for a decade and collected songs. And she put the Pine Hawkers on the map I couldn't believe it. There's literally a New Jersey folk band on the map of American folk music that used to be in public schools in the 1940s and 50s. But they just, you know, eventually that kind of musical education was thrown out, um, you know, because there was just not enough time for all that kind of stuff. You know, there was just enough time for band or whatever, which also I'm a proponent of school band. But, you know, they used to teach the history of American music back in the day. They don't do it anymore. Um, So she, you know, made this map and... I was almost like, it sounds so silly, but like I almost like was knocked over on the floor. I had goosebumps about a mile high when on this map of folk music in the United States, there's literally three dudes from Jersey with fiddles and banjos. And I'm like, 
see so this is real this really is real so that's when we were like we got to record some of this stuff and uh now we'll be playing all around new jersey and as you know the country as well when we finally will get back on the road this year too it's really awesome it i was happy when i learned about this i was happy when i heard the songs hearing you talk about the history and the thought behind it because one of the things that's being made really clear to me too is got to remember this is prior generations this was working class music this was this was music that working people had and that is probably what makes me feel like it ties right into that jersey as well because what does Jer what does a jersey audience love more than a song about somebody working on a dock you know yeah, like yeah and from the richest parts of jersey to the poorest everybody can get behind a song about a longshoreman you know or you know and this is what that this is that music and to know that it was some notable stuff was created here super cool super uh, cool yeah like oh go ahead <laughs> pardon me no i was just gonna say there's something that gather and i talk about a lot is the one of the big differences between north and south jersey being that south jersey tends to be to play things a, a little bit closer um and to be a little more just kind of like i don't know insular i guess in general and we joke about it a lot as it being a kind of like there being like a mysteriousness to South Jersey, but, and, and that's, that's fun and funny and whatever, but I think it's really important to consider the fact that like what you guys are talking about, nobody was threatening to build a wall around North Jersey. Right. So like when you come from an area where people are so like, I don't, it just makes sense that you would be a little more private and then but then we also maybe have to thank that kind of protectiveness for this music being for you being able to trace it so directly back to the 1400s right because there is that kind of protectiveness and closeness and a uh, little less willingness to kind of like mix and mingle um that still carries on because of things like that so i think it's it's just a really interesting um thing to be able to trace what we kind of talk about as a joke in a lot of ways to something much more concrete and yeah no for sure i mean like the reason why albert hall was made in the 70s and the reason why albert music hall exists still today is sort of that willingness to sort of turn away from uh maybe what else whatever else is going on in the local scene even though like think about 1970s south jersey you don't really think about a music scene you think of asbury park mm -hmm. you, know, you think about stuff like that but um you know, Merce Ridgway, he says uh, in his book, he wrote a book about his life as well. Um, it's called The Bayman, by the way, which he actually was a Barnegat Bay clamor. <laughs> so that was his cool. livelihood. So there, he actually has a song about working on the dock <laughs> in the Barnegat Bay. It's going to be on volume two, believe it or not. I'm not even joking. It's oh, yeah. called... Uh, what is it? It's called the Clam Diggers Blues. But anyway, um, can't even make this stuff up. It's actually, that's really what it's called. Um, so, but he started Albert Music Hall because he was unhappy with the local coffee house music scene. He thought it sucked. He was like, people, get, they, they play for too long. People that aren't that good get to play all night. People aren't like sharing time with each other. So they just found a auction ring in where town it was just it didn't have heat it was like a barn basically and they just started having their own diy shows there they were diy shows um and they started using the money to save up to build a building and you know it's because he was willing to turn away from what everyone else was doing and just create his own thing i think that also is like a huge like nj ethos and like new jersey like work ethic and aesthetic is like that when everyone is doing something one way if you don't really dig it don't like it you make your own lane and you like do things the way that you want to do them whether or not anyone else is coming along for the ride or not you know i also want to say before we wrap up one thing that i'm really coming to appreciate about the group dynamic of jackson appliance is i love that it seems like the breakdown will is that joe you are like a historian philosopher you think very hard about this james you say a lot less but everything you say tends to be completely ridiculous is this, uh, is this just for this interview or is this is this across the board no it's pretty accurate i got a lot of there's a lot of ridiculous stuff in my life so i kind of <laughs> let it out now and then but yeah you can learn a lot from joe man especially on this subject but I always say that, like, I say too much, and it's always like this. But when James speaks, it's like hundred percent solid gold. It's 
<laughs> remarkable. <laughs> it's a hell of a duo. It's a hell of a duo that you guys represent. Well, I have to say, congrats on it. It's Jackson Pines, everybody. Um, Pine Barrens Volume 1 just came out. When it, When is Volume 2? You guys working on it right now? Um, we're going to be recording a new album of original music that's also going to come out this year because in addition to this, we still we have our own songs. Um, and then we will be working on Volume 2 later in this year. And it might come out the beginning of next year. We're not sure if we're going to do two a year or one a year, but we're definitely going to do at least three. Uh, God mm-hmm. willing, the creek don't rise because we've got the material and uh, we really uh, there's still stuff we haven't put out yet that we think is also pertinent and important to the story. Um, and then at that point, when we have a bunch, like maybe 15 songs, we'll like put them all together and just like maybe press that to like a you know limited edition vinyl or something. But that'll be you know work in progress it's on Bandcamp now and it'll be on all the streamers very soon we just wanted to wait for Bandcamp friday to come and go uh mm-hmm. for the band promotion right. and try, uh, to try to make an honest buck off your own work before you let the streamers just completely ravage you as artists yeah you know just so we can pay for the next one the next recording session and then we can get it going um but uh we're really excited to have that, that out and uh yeah we got permission from actually got merce ridgeway jr's widow uh, it took me eight months to track down her phone number, but she answered the phone from Shirley, West Virginia, where they retired to, oh. and she gave us permission to play and record and talk about the family catalog. So we're happy oh, to get cool. to get that kind of odyssey, uh, you know, cinched up there. But yeah, thank you so much. We really Please. appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Guys. Thank you for the, the songs. Thank you for the history lesson. Thank you for keeping keeping the ball in the air and making sure that another generation has the history of these songs tracked down and committed to the tape it's it's really cool and i can't thank you enough i'm i'm blown away i'm blown away by this project it's really awesome thank you so much thank you very much thanks thank you thank you for listening to this presentation of new jersey is the world new jersey is the world is chris gethard nikki bonaduce don finelli andrea quinn carson cop and mike d New Jersey is the World is produced and edited by Carson Kopp, Mike D, and Andrea Quinn. You can find us online at New Jersey is the World and on Instagram at New Jersey is the World. Also, please feel free to reach out and leave us a voicemail by contacting the home office of New Jersey is the World at 973-780-4660 in regards to anything show or New Jersey related. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes of New Jersey is the World on your favorite podcast service. If you're looking to join our extremely opinionated and Jersey-ish community, head on over to Patreon.com and search for New Jersey is the World. We have merch, which you can find at BelowTheCollar.com after searching for Chris Gethard. Once again, thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the world, where New Jersey is the world.